Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Senior, the president of Gospel App Ministries, www.gospel-app.com. We are in the middle of a podcast series through the Sermon on the Mount. We are in the Beatitudes. We're looking at the second Beatitude, Blessed Are Those Who Mourn. Um, and uh, so if you didn't hear the first part of it, go back and check it out. And listen, uh, before I get into it, please uh, help us get the word out. We're going, we're taking some interesting looks at the Beatitude, I think, that are very, very helpful, very relevant, very life-changing, very powerful presentations of the gospel. It's hard to do in a series on the Beatitudes. They're so familiar, but we're in a rut, I would suggest, an exegesis of the Beatitudes. We're missing some, some beautiful, beautiful aspects of it. And I hope I hope that I can convince you of that. So let us know, bill at gospel-app.com. But uh, please help us get the word out. Wherever you are listening to podcasts, please share it, follow it, like it, get the word out to your Bible study groups, your churches, your your Bible colleges. We'd love to get the dialogue going, okay? And also uh, listen to our Instagram, gospel app, one word, G-O-S-P-E-L-A-P-P. All right. Let's get going. Blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. Uh, No one would have ever said to a person who had just experienced a huge loss, I mean, think a loved one, or maybe they just got word that they have cancer, they've lost their health, or they're going bankrupt, or just received divorce papers, or an IRS audit, or lost a child, or had a miscarriage, or lost a child in a shooting, or this is relevant, they had an invading army come into their country. And they just felt rage bubble up and frustration bubble up. You know, so, so, you know, if you're sitting on the side of that mountain and any of those things have happened of that hill, you're thinking, Jesus, I would. Anyway, what do, you, what do you know about my life, my sorrow? Don't talk to me about a gracious God and don't ever call me enviable. I'm not enviable. Look at me. Open up your eyes, right? I mean, that would have bubbled up out of a lot of humanity. But remember, first of all, Jesus knows. The only other one who knows what you're experiencing, period. Two, he will experience pinthine more than anyone ever. He will lose the experience, not the actual relationship, but he'll lose the experience and feel like he's lost oneness with the Father. It's not possible. Uh, At least that's what we believe about the Trinity, but he would have experienced that. Um, Three, he can give you power that will beat up the death grip that sadness has on your midbrain, actually begin to rewire your midbrain. He built your brain so he knows how it works. He's the original computer programmer. If You know, drugs, which we take for sadness and depression and suicide ideation, they can cause you to stop feeling the pain of loss, or they can disguise the remaining pain with a shot of dopamine or serotonin. But those are very addictive and not a cure. and They're just a shot. Jesus can redeem, rescue, and restore perfectly in heaven and a little bit here on planet Earth, right? It should be noticeable. In his arms, experientially in his arms, if you're a Christian, you're in his arms, but experiencing that's another thing. If you, When you experience that being in his intimate arms, you can want to dance again. You can smile again. Now, that will require a power bigger than you have in your brain, bigger than you have in any muscle group you have, and it's far greater than the effect of antidepressants. And I'm not I'm not slamming at it a princess. If if you are seeing a doctor, follow their advice. All right, we're gonna look at the second half of the verse, blessed are the penthine, 
because we looked at that in the last podcast, because they will be comforted, parakaleo. R.T. France, a commentator, says that the use of the passive, they shall be comforted, is a Semitic idiom for what God will do, right? I love that. So they will be comforted is an idiom for God will comfort them. I totally agree with that. I think that's right, uh, out of the mouth of Jesus. In many places, parakaleo is interpreted, translated, comforted. For one Bible dictionary, it's to instill someone with courage or cheer or comfort or encouragement to cheer them up. Well, I want to bring out a second meaning of parakaleo that is also, and also's key word here is also relevant here. I think both aspects of parakaleo work in the Sermon on the Mount. It carries the sense of gathering people into the presence of the speaker, to make it personal, to make it one-on-one, to make it face-to-face. So here's that Bible dictionary again, to ask to come and be present where the speaker is, to call to one side. So it could be they will be asked to come to Jesus's side, think covenantally, think relationally, uh, think relational comfort for those who have been isolated in pain and suffering. It's very important. We all know that. If you're going to comfort somebody, you need to be with them. You need to be by their side. Hard to do from a distance. You know, you can do what you can on Zoom, but face-to-face, side-by-side, arm around each other, that makes a big difference. So where do we see that before? Paul in Acts 28 is a prime example. He calls the local leaders of the Jews of Rome together, a gathering, so that he can look at them face-to-face and speak to them, Acts 28.20. So for this reason, I have asked to see you, there it is, and speak to you. So literally, it's I have parakaleoed you, to see and speak with you, to draw you together. And that's what Jesus has done on the hillside. It's the fruit of the incarnation. God came down so he could call people to himself physically. Well, why would this sense of parakaleo be so powerful to, to sad people? Well, in your sorrow, you may begin to feel like God's not paying any attention or is ignoring you or is ashamed of you. He's still faced towards you, uh, referring to that attachment theory experiment where the mother is looking at the child and playing with the child and then shuts her face down and the child just goes, it just dysregulates emotionally. So maybe God's still faced towards you. That's how it feels or ashamed or angry or disappointed. You might suspect that he doesn't want you anywhere around or he doesn't want to be anywhere around you. I imagine many on the hillside felt that. But what if God gave you a legit personal invitation to come into my presence? You know, Bob, come on up here, man. Aaliyah, here, come on, put it in, in, come into my arms. Booker, come on, man. And he hugs Booker. And you come close enough to see his face shining. You know, that idiom for, he is so glad to see you and to be with you. And you can tell because of his face. You see it in his eyes. You see his pupils dilating. He's excited. It's causing a chemical reaction in his body and brain. And you see your reflection beginning to feel. You can see it in your face in response. Someone cares. Someone is seen. Someone gets you. Someone is ready to comfort you. And you're beginning to be prepared for that. You are beginning to feel like a beloved son or daughter because of this relationship, the presence of God. And we've all felt that once. Um, One of my passions, one of the passions of Gospel at Ministry is to help Christians experience that again. We know we're going to get it in heaven, but I think we've lost touch with the promise that Jesus paid for it a little bit uh, here now. I I think we've lost the ability to, to, to get that. Okay? So this personal empathetic God 
Jesus is standing there in this crowd of hurting people, and he's whatever he's doing, he's manifesting that he, he cares about them. He knows what they've lost. And there's this confidence in his face that he can actually do something about it, and will, by the way, sometime, and maybe uh, begin now. So you're that close. Jesus whispers in your ear, blessed are you, sad one, weeping one, mourning one, uh, beat up one. Or to modernize it, you know what? You get a written, embossed invitation into the Holy of Holies and the face of God uh, as a special guest. And it turns out you've always been on the A-list and not based upon you or anything you've done or your family or socioeconomic or religion or denomination or skin color or sex. It's all based upon what Jesus has done for you and what he's done for you. And you enter into that, which also takes a power called faith. Look, let me tackle it another way. So imagine if you were a Jew who was struggling with inconsolable sorrow, injustice, you've been wrongly shamed, bullied, oppressed, abused, treated with racism. You've lost something that, that you just couldn't take. Maybe you're one of those Galilean families in uh, Nazareth who lost father or brother or son in the insurrection a couple of decades back, and your life has never been the same. You've never been happy. Well, where do you go to find relief? If you were Jew, right? Consolation, some hope, some comfort, some happiness. Well, you, you go to the Temple Mount, I guess, and at great expense of wealth, reputational humiliation because you're there publicly and um, you, you know you probably have to explain yourself why are you going what do you hope to get and you think you're thinking that that's it, where you at least have a lottery shot at getting righteousness and justice and consolation so that you could smile more uh, your sorrow and mourning ended where at least you can feel like God hasn't left you and listen in your wildest imaginings you would never ever go to Galilee for that right? To meet with God or try to please God or, or be comforted by God, you would 100% of the time go to Jerusalem and the Temple Mount because what you were told is that's where God dwelt, right? That's where the you, you saw the face of God face to face. But let's, let's play the game. Going to the Temple Mount was likely no cakewalk. First century Judaism was a bit on the moralistic side of the honor-shame culture, right? So, and I think I'm being fair there. How do you think that you would have been treated or felt like you were being treated as you walked up the steps of the Temple Mount crying, uh, bawling like a baby? You're feeling maybe shame, guilt, fear already related to God's gaze upon you because, you know, if God had cared much about you, he would have stopped that loss, or he would have provided for you, or he would have been there. So you're wondering, anger may be bubbling up, going, well, where was God when I needed him? Where was God when I needed, uh, when my son needed him, when my daughter needed him? Where was God when I lost my business, when I lost my health? That'd be normal humanity. Think Psalm 88, where the psalmist actually begins to blame God for all of all of their woes. And also, you would likely see the, avoiding downward glances from uncomfortable people around you, frightened people around you, religious people around you, self-righteous people around you who were putting on happy faces, right? You know, look at him, look at her, watch, watch out. 
um, man, they are they must be on God's negative list, right? Clearly, they they have to deserve something. Don't get too close to them; they're just going to bring you down. We're supposed to be partying at the temple now, and this person, oh my goodness, feel bad for them, but I don't want to hang out with them. So, in your time of greatest need, sorrow, frustration, confusion, and humiliation. You would like to think that the religious others would be empathetic and gracious because of what God has been to them, but narrow, exclusive religious communities can often be very superstitious and self-righteous and um, insensitive, fearful, exclusive, judgmental, us versus them, and sometimes downright mean, right? Uh, and, and, and listen, particularly if you have been sad for months or years, you just, they just, people just don't want to hang out with you. I'm just saying it's, it's part of human nature, not Jesus's nature, but, but the, or the Holy Spirit in you's nature, but humanity. So I wonder how many Jews in Jerusalem would want to get that near to you if they believe that God didn't want to get near to you. Why would they embrace you or comfort you time and time again if something's wrong? Um, so it's my guess that Every step you took closer to the Temple Mount, you would most likely, right or wrong, feel worse. More sorrow, more isolation, more alone, more despised, more like a victim, more like a sad monster, and, and maybe even hopeless. I'm just saying that most likely Jerusalem and the Temple Mount would be a very hard place for afflicted, compromised, sick, ashamed, depressed morning, beat-up Jews to go. And then there's the thought that probably pops into your head, what if it doesn't work? What if this is a joke? What if, what if God really, really doesn't want to be my protector? What if he's turned away? What if he's gone still-faced? What if he's indifferent? Now look, this is how many people think of church today and God in the church today. Today, there are entire groups of people who will not enter the door of a church for the same reason. It, it seems like every time they come, they feel worse. They feel more shame. They feel sadder. They feel more like the odd duck out. And <clears throat> I know one lady who went to her church. She was feeling depressed. She was feeling uh, uh, her self-esteem was low. And she came to her church late, you know, right? Shame, guilt. And everybody's raising their hand, worshiping the victorious Jesus. And she looked around and felt so depressed. She felt like she didn't belong. All of these other people are feeling Jesus is victorious in their life. I'm not. I'm broken. I'm wrong. I don't belong here. And she left her home church, period, just that quick. Are you following me? I think that we can all agree that often institutionalized religion has been insensitive to various groups. Um and can appear judgmental and exclusive and uncaring and critical and, and non-comforting, self-righteous, despising. Here's some recent statistics from Christian millennials. 87% of mills see Christians as judgmental, right? 85% hypocritical. 70% believe that Christians are uncaring and sensitive to others. Well, wow. That's... Uh, to me, that says that we Christian, we, we church people have been acting human and we haven't been tapping into the Holy Spirit because that's, you can't say that of the Holy Spirit. So I think that this is far more accurate than I want to admit those numbers. I confess that I have too have treated hurting people the same way. And I suppose it was in the name of religion. 
or using or hiding behind religion. I get how easy it is. So I'm not judging people. And again, I'm saying that it's because we're not tapping into the heart of God and the Holy Spirit in our inner being. Again, a passion of gospel app. So, and listen, organized religion denominations beat me up too. I get it. There's a lot of selfish and sensitive, frightened, anxious, judgmental, and angry Jesus followers out there. In many ways, we look just so much like the world. What if you lost a close loved one in a tragedy? You feel your world going black, or it's gone black for months or years. You're becoming a shadow of yourself. You're just wandering, a ghost. What does the Temple of Jerusalem offer you? What if you were a woman wrongly divorced by her husband who preferred someone else? I don't know if the temple's going to help you. Or a young man who is mocked and made fun of, who has been treated unfairly due to some issues, some deformity, some skin color, some life choice or tribe. You're pinthine, sad, and just want to die. What, what is the temple going to offer you? Or a woman who had been raped or forced into prostitution. Likewise, probably not even welcomed at the temple. What does the temple offer you? And ideally, it should offer an audience with God. Lipne Elohim, that idiom, Old Testament idiom, which was a present, being in the presence and the front of God's face so you can see him smiling at you and feeling confidence in that, feeling relationship from that, comfort from that, uh, this caring, healing God. And there, Lipne Elohim, before his face, you can speak to him and he hears you, see it in his eyes that he gets your hurt that, and gives you confidence that, that he hasn't left you. He's still got your back and he's going to affect righteousness and justice. Eventually, you get hope from that, that it's going to be repaired, the guilty punished, and you restored to respect and honor. But let's be honest. There was a time when the powerful Shekinah glory of God abided in the Holy of Holies. His presence was powerful. We read it in the Old Testament, and it made the people glorious. But then the great exile happened in 586 BC. The Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, raised the temple to the ground. The prophet Ezekiel, in a vision, saw God's Shekinah glory leaving the Holy of Holies, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and headed east. After 70 years of exile, Israel returned to the land, rebuilt the Temple Mount complex, including the Holy of Holies. But what about the presence of God? Did God return? You know, there is no record of the powerful Shekinah glory of God ever returning to the Temple Mount. Between the rebuilding of the Temple and the Sermon on the Mount, over a half a millennium had passed, with the Holy of Holies being an empty shell. No ark, no presence of God. Tragic right? So where do you go for comfort? See, I'm guessing the average Jew didn't have any idea. They didn't make this publicly known. But the uh, inner leaders did. The priests kept up the temple rituals as if God was still in the Holy of Holies, meaning they faked it. And I'm not saying it was an evil intention. It might have been an invitational. You know, God, we're just going to keep this up until you come. We know you're coming. So, but the priests did do that. We know from rabbinical writings that had been passed down that they were aware of God's glory was not there. The ark was not there. It was empty. In the Talmud, Rabbi Eliezer is quoted as saying that in the second temple, the high priest was to follow the Torah commands to the letter as if the ark were still in the Holy of Holies. But it was recognized it was not there. So follow me here. When the curtains of the temple were ripped apart when Jesus was crucified, it wasn't to make access to God available to anyone. Nuh-uh. It was to expose the dirty, 
well-kept secret that God's unique, empathetic, personal, intimate, righteous, and just presence wasn't there. Meaning, no consolation for the person who was pinthine, who was sad. And because, why, why did the why did that have to be exposed? Because the truth told, he was hanging on a wooden cross just a few meters away. He wasn't in the temple. If you wanted to have an audience with God, you would have to go to the cross. Good theology, by the way. So what could you do? Where can you go to find relief and into your sorrow, begin to feel happiness and joy again, feel like God has your back, that God cares, that God hasn't gone still face, and, and consider even smiling again, much less dancing? Well, you would go to a hillside in Galilee on a particular day or days. You know, we spoke about uh, early on in the podcast series, a comparison of two mountains. There was Mount Sinai with Mount, with Moses going up, receiving the Torah. And then there was Jesus on this different so-called mountain, per Matthew. And it was a tale of two mountains, and we compared and contrasted them. But there's another tale of two mountains that's even more interesting. And this is a contrasting image. There is the Temple Mount, or Mount Zion, if you prefer. If you needed divine intervention, God's empathetic presence, you needed to look into God's face and see that he still is with you. He's not ignoring you. Um, If uh, this presence, that this DNA of God that longs to rescue the poor in spirit, Luke 4, Isaiah 61, that longs to, to rescue the poor in spirit, the meek, and those who mourn, right, the first three Beatitudes, you're not going to find it in the Temple Mount, but you will find it in mountain number two, a couple days journey north. There you would find God incarnate, the divine splagnizomai, that unique Greek word that speaks of God's uh, gut-wrenching compassion for hurting people that moves him to rescue them. His compassion, his empathy, um, whose heart breaks for the poor, the beat up, for those who suffer unfair losses, who are mistreated, who, who cares about social justice. He's there, he's sitting on that hillside, and he's inviting anybody to come and be hugged and kissed, the face of God incarnate. So we see the stark difference. First, there, as far as I know, there's no reported healing at the temple in a long time, but there were mass healings in Galilee. And second, I wonder, just wonder, if, if the really hurting, the disenfranchised, those who mourned, we're excited about going to Jerusalem, as I've laid out. I mean, you, you weren't welcome if you were diseased or a leper or a prostitute or demon-possessed or a divorced woman or someone who was a tax collector, for instance, Matthew, a shepherd, a tanner, uh, among others, or, of course, a Gentile, the uncircumcised. Why would you think you're going to go to the temple and get anything other than shame and judgment and criticism, and uh, Right? But, but these were the very people who flocked to be with Jesus, to see his comforting face, to experience his touch and embrace, parakaleo, to be alongside of him. To be clear, the old temple was just a hollow shadow of, of what it once was. I mean, most notable was what was absent. The king of the Jews in Jerusalem was an appointee of Rome, not of God. The high priest was pretty much corrupt. He's going to lead the charge to kill Jesus. That's not good. And there hasn't been a legit prophet for a long time, except technically John the Baptist and now Jesus at the new temple, which was, let's let's call it a mobile temple. That's what it was. Jesus is fleshing out upon real people what righteousness and justice looks like in the flesh. 
Do we know that he touched depressed, sad, mourning, pen-thine people and they danced? There's no official record of it, but I have no doubt that it happened. Um, if not on the hillside, then later when they joined him in heaven, dancing. But this little phrase captures another aspect of God's heart. And we see it in, in Isaiah 61. We see it in Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. There's that closeness. God doesn't just wave his arm from a distance. He comes close. He draws people close. I, I remember Brennan Manning story. He says, you know, do you know when you get to heaven, first thing you'll see is Jesus running up to you, hugging you, and he whispers in your ear, uh, in English, hopefully, do you know how much I've loved you? And your immediate answer will be no. Uh, but we can experience that more because of the ever-presence of God, the Holy Spirit in our inner being. And But listen to Psalm, I mean, Isaiah 49, 13. Shout for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. Burst into song, O mountains. So this is the creation dancing and shouting the, the, the ground, the mountains. Why? For the Lord comforts, Nacham uh, in the Hebrew, Eleo in, in the Greek, comforts his people. There it is. The people who are who are experiencing Penthine need that. Something about the touch of God that actually works. So for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion that's parakaleo in the Greek, uh, Septuagint, on his afflicted one, the anawim, which is the same Hebrew word that uh, was used in the, the first beatitude, the poor. So there's a lot of overlap. We hear it simply put in the voice of Jesus. Enviable are the inconsolable, because I myself will bring them close and comfort them. Um, as Jesus powerfully spoke, Here's what I'm thinking. His spirit pursued and embraced human penthine, went after sorrow, went after depression. The mourners felt less sad because of that. Or maybe they even felt happiness for the first time in a long while. It's inexplicable. They couldn't have told you why. Much Remember the, the blind man that Jesus heals and he couldn't explain what happened because how could he? But he can see. Well, in this case, the, the uh, penthine feel comforted because Jesus spoke, because Jesus was present, because Jesus got their pain, they saw it, and he touched their pain and healed. Jesus' follower, this is such stunning good news. It would seem that at the very beginning of the Jesus narrative, we are exposed to what Matthew is presenting as the true nature and passion of Jesus. And if it is Jesus's nature and passion, then theologically it's God's as well, and it's the Holy Spirit's in you as well. And that's something to think about. Is that how we see God? Is that how we see the Holy Spirit in our inner being? Or do we imagine in our sadness and penthine that he still face? Well, Jesus cares for those that no one else cares about. Um, there's a new commercial out where um, uh, it talks about a man walking around and seeing people hurting and suffering and and uh, hunger and, and being afflicted and wars and stuff. And the punchline is it says, and Jesus gets you. He is inviting you to his banquet where you can dine freely as a guest of honor because Jesus cares for those that no one else cares about. It's his nature, not mine, honestly, but it is his. So if you are an Audi in church today, not, you're not Audi from Jesus unless it's your choice. Run to Jesus's banquet and uh, be healed a little or a lot, but eternally healed.
By the way, it is true in the case of mourning that institutional religion just doesn't have power to remove the sorrow. I've been a pastor for over 25 years. Man, I, I can't. I've told people if I had a magic wand and, and it would work by slapping them, I would slap them silly if, if it could make them less sad. I don't have that. Their brain is just locked in. It takes a, a real power. It's brain science, too, and, and a miracle. It takes a competing power. Sadness is a power. Joy is one of the fruit of the spirit. Isn't that interesting? And it, and, and it is in the DNA of Jesus. It's power. Right. So come all who can't process your depression or sorrow. I get it. It's human. I made your brain. I get it. Uh, And none of your current deities is going to work. None of your current deities or drugs is going to bring you consolation. So come to the hill in Galilee and meet Jesus. Meet me. He knows your sorrow. He cares. He has the desire and passion and power to do something about it. It's pretty straightforward. Not perfectly that seven. But noticeably, again, if if Jesus can lift 10% of your sadness, you notice the difference. That's not 100%, that's 10%, and you'd notice the difference. It, think of a businessman how many, or businesswoman. How many businesswomen wouldn't appreciate a 10% increase in their bottom line? That's the point. Matthew is inviting us to imagine a, a religious, cultural revolution that has begun on that hillside. Something new is happening not in Jerusalem, not on the Temple Mount, not in Judaism per se, but publicly in the open, accessible to anyone of any people group in Galilee on the international highway of all places where the world can come to. Something dramatic for those who have no hope. Come as you are. What are you going to do? And and you too can find favor and comfort with the God of the Jews, and I'll tell you how to do it. Blessed be. Enviable are the inconsolable because I myself will bring them close and comfort them, or I myself bring them close and comfort them. We'll stop here. Once again, please help us get the word out. This has got to be great news. This is such a clarity on the gospel. There's hurting people out there who don't believe this, hurting Christians out there who are wondering if God has gone still face. Please, you know them. You know who they are. Get this to them. I'm begging you. Uh, be that minister. And I and I appreciate, we appreciate your service ahead of time. And like this podcast on your podcast provider, follow it, share it, share it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, your church newsletter. Uh, and we appreciate it. I think it'll make a difference. Get the word out to your small group, your church community. Follow us on Instagram, gospel app, one word, G-O-S-P-E-L-A-P-P. And by the way, if you can't comment on your podcast provider, Send it directly. We love it. Bill at gospel-app.com. Well, we'll see you next time on the Gospel Rant. Have you ever considered yourself a messenger? Whether it's mics like this, bookshelves around the world, stages to take or art to make, or perhaps businesses to build, it's time we start testifying truth unashamedly, creatively, and in love. My name is Tamara Andress, the host of the Messenger Movement Podcast, which is designed to catalyze Christians to speak, write, build, and testify. If you're ready to turn your message into a movement and want to run with other messengers doing the thing at scale globally, search and follow the Messenger Movement Podcast on your favorite podcast platform today or lifeaudio.com.